Matthew chapter 12, we're going to be finishing that chapter this morning, looking at verses 38 through 50. The title of the sermon is, When Enough's Enough and Excuses Are Excused. Someone said, Amen. They don't know what that title's about, but Amen. Sounds like a good one. (laughs) Uh, I will be reading and preaching from the NIV this morning. We'll start reading together in Matthew 12, verse 38. It says in Matthew 12, 38, Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men in Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, Jesus said, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I'll return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds a house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. This is how it will be with this wicked generation. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mothers and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. Jesus replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is a word of the Lord. Thank you, God, for your word this morning that is living and active. Thank you for the gift of the person of the Holy Spirit who is a teacher of all things. We ask the Holy Spirit you would teach us about Jesus, about the Father's love, about the glorious truth of the gospel. You would help us to comprehend the word. You'd give us understanding, open our hearts and our minds to see comprehend. Give us hearts that want to obey Jesus, to do the will of the Father, to pursue hard after you. Would Jesus please be exalted in our listening, in my preaching, and in our living in response to your word this week. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've uh, been a believer for any length of time, you know that there are seasons and spaces and places and times in life where you have some honest doubt about, you know, God and his plan and the way this world is going, God's word and some of the promises there. There there is a place within Christianity for honest doubt. Doubt is not necessarily the opposite of faith. Doubt is often the seedbed, the fertile ground in which faith grows. We all have doubts from time to time. You'll remember that the disciples came to Jesus one time and said, Jesus, we believe, but help our unbelief. 
There are times, places, spaces, instances, seasons where we can struggle with some of the truth that we know. That's, that's okay. That's part of the human experience. That's part of faith. There are other times, however, where we are fairly convinced of what is right and wrong, what is true, what is told to us in the Word of God, what is God's way, and we simply just don't want to go that way. Can I get a witness now? I got a yep before anyone now. There are just times where, you know, we, we know right from wrong. It's pretty black and white. And we just don't want to go God's way sometimes. Well, here we see the antagonists in the book of Matthew. Once again, the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And once again, very similar to last week's text, they are simply not wanting to go God's way. Not wanting to go the way of Christ. And so they come to Jesus in our text and they say to him, Jesus, now we want you to show us a sign. It seems as though it would be a fair enough question. However, just 16 verses ago, Jesus delivered a man who was blind and mute because of a demon. And before that, he healed a man in their presence in the synagogue who had a shriveled hand. And then just before that, he had healed two men who were blind from birth. And then just before that, he had raised a young girl from the dead. And then just before that, he had healed a man who had been paralyzed for his whole life. And then just before that, he had calmed the storm, the wind and the waves, with just a word. And just before that, he had touched and cleansed a leper. And praise the Lord. And that was just in the last four chapters. And we're told explicitly that the Pharisees and the religious leaders had been there to eyewitness at least four of those miracles and the others they had certainly heard about. That's why when they come to Jesus and they say, you know, Jesus, I mean, we we want to believe you, but if only we could see a sign. He calls them wicked and adulterous. Wicked because they were refusing to acknowledge who he was in spite of abundant evidence. Adulterous because they were refusing to go God's way when they should have been the people who knew better. Don't misunderstand. The point is not that it's wrong in general to seek confirmation from someone who claims to be from God. That's that's not the point. It's not that it's wrong to have honest questions or doubts about that. Their own scriptures, the Old Testament, told them about testing people who claimed to be prophets. The situation here is that they had already seen and heard of Jesus' demonstrations of who he was, and yet they simply refused to acknowledge him as the Messiah. And this was just plainly indicative of the fact that they did not want to go God's way. Talked about that last week. They didn't want to get on board with what God was clearly doing. And so Jesus, with his authority, calls them wicked and adulterous. The issue with the religious leaders here is that they had seen much, but trusted little. They had seen much, of who Jesus was through his demonstrations of power and authority, but they were believing little. Seen much, believed little. And, and they, again, they should have been the ones who knew better. 
right? They were the ones who were entrusted with the Word of God at the time, the Old Testament. They were supposed to be the teachers of Israel. And, And they were Israel. They were Jews after all. And they had the context, the promises of the coming Messiah and what that would look like. And some of these miracles were understood in first century Judaism to be messianic miracles, miracles that only the Messiah would do, opening the eyes of the blind from birth, raising people from the dead, healing lepers. They should have known better. They had the context. And so Jesus like kind of shames them a little bit when he brings up Nineveh and the queen of the south. These were the religious leaders of Israel who should have known better. Nineveh was not a part of Israel. They were fully removed from the plans and the promises of God. And yet they repented when Jonah went to them. You remember the story. You've read that little book, Jonah. Fully removed, no context whatsoever. Jonah shows up on the shores, spit out of the fish, reluctantly there, preaches to them, I'm sure, an unenthusiastic message. Remember, he didn't want to be there, didn't care about the Ninevites, was happy for them to go to hell, shows up, preaches this message, and look what it says about the king of Nineveh. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. That was ancient sign of like mourning, weeping, repenting. This is a proclamation he issued in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let people or animals or herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. This is an extreme response. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And God did relent. God had mercy on Nineveh. They recognized Jonah as a prophet and the word of the Lord coming to them and they repented. And so Jesus says to the leaders of Israel, listen, Nineveh is going to stand up on the day in judgment and condemn you. And then he says, and by the way, something greater than Jonah is here, speaking of himself. He's like, how are you guys missing this? And then he references there in our passage, the queen of the south. He says, and the queen of the south will stand up and condemn this generation for their unbelief. That was the queen of Sheba who came to visit Solomon. Again, outside of the context of God and the Old Testament scriptures, but she heard about this king in Israel who had great wisdom. And so she went to hear Solomon's wisdom. And upon hearing his wisdom, she said this, Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. The point being, Nineveh, who didn't really have a context to know better, the queen of the south, who didn't have a context to know better, recognized the move of God and were willing to go God's way when they heard the word of God. And these religious leaders were not. And Jesus says, and something greater than Solomon is here. He's trying to rattle them to attention. You guys esteem Jonah and Solomon. Something is greater than here. And these pagan entities will be a witness against you on the day of judgment because you should have known better and heard. There was, and repented when you heard. There was no excuse for their not believing. Now, we... 
we look back on that and it's easy for us to say, yeah, Pharisees, those guys are stupid. No excuse. But there is, I believe, a warning here for us. Remember, they had seen so much. They had heard so much. They had so much context. The dots should have been connected for them. We now, as followers of Jesus, have also seen much and heard much. And there should be some dots that the Holy Spirit connects in our minds when we hear the Word of God and the call of God. Now, admittedly, it might not always look like it looks here in the Gospel of Matthew. It may not be that we are seeing the blind, their eyes open, and the paralyzed begin to walk, and these sort of miracles. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Some of us have, some of us haven't. But still, regardless of what we've seen with regards to those sort of miracles, if we're followers of Jesus, we have already witnessed and experienced and are direct participants in the greatest miracle the world has ever known, the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. So we are not the kind of people that say, well, if I only saw someone rise from the dead, if I only saw someone whose eyes were opened, if I only saw this sort of thing, because we have already experienced the miracle to which they all pointed. All of them were just foreshadows, uh, pictures of points toward, signposts for the greatest miracle that would be the Son of God dying for us, rising from the dead, that we might have the forgiveness of sin and new life. And if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, you've become a Christian, then you have become participants in the greatest miracle, the cross. And I'll remind you of what Romans says about this in Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? In other words, don't sweat the little things. We have life in Christ. We've been forgiven of our sins, so it doesn't even make sense when we start to think this way. Well, God is withholding something good from me. Or if God would only do thus and so. If ever we are wondering about the power of God, the goodness of God, or the love of God, we look to the cross. Romans continues, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, no one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, we are recipients of, participants in, the greatest demonstration of God's love and power in all of history. Christ's death and resurrection from the dead. The reason why this is important is because I originally couched this sort of message in my intro in terms of, listen, in life we often have honest doubts. 
and honest doubts are okay about God, his word, his plan, the way things are going. That's part of growing in faith is struggling with those things. Other times we simply have a lack of trust and we just don't want to go God's way. And we've got to ask ourselves, because that's kind of heading the way of the Pharisees there. We've got to remind ourselves, we've seen enough through the forgiveness of sins. If our sins have been forgiven, we've seen enough. If we never see anything else, we've seen enough. So why, in the face of the proof of God's love and power in Christ's cross and resurrection, why am I so slow often to trust God? And maybe it is about His Word. Maybe we don't trust some of the things that are said there. We've got to ask ourselves why that is in light of the cross. Sometimes it's about what God determines to be right from wrong. We don't always like that. Sometimes we want to go in the opposite way. Sometimes we doubt his values on things like generosity, how we deal with our money, sexuality, how we handle our body, forgiveness, how we deal with our bitterness. Sometimes, I mean, the Bible's actually pretty clear on all those issues, generosity, sexuality, forgiveness. We just don't often want to go that way. Sometimes we're not trusting in God's sovereignty that he's in control. It's good to remember at a time like this in our nation, God is in control and sovereign. He's a king of kings and the Lord of lords. He rules and reigns. Sometimes it's hard to lean into and fully believe his care for us. Our health is challenged. Kids are sick. We've been let down. Oftentimes, life becomes for us about something that we perceive that God is withholding from us. And the assumption is, well, God is mean. Why can't I have that thing? It might have to do with our sexuality. might have to do with our income. might have to do with a relationship. You know, that is just the oldest trick in the book. Right? That's what Satan did in the garden. God told Eve and Adam, look, you could eat from any tree in the garden except for that one. I'm just telling you, as God who made everything, every tree in the garden, just don't eat from that one. And Satan comes along and says, well, what about the one? And you can imagine Eve, I mean, we, we don't have this recorded, but maybe if God had given her a brain, she might have said, well, what... I didn't mean that, how that sounded. (laughs) Adam was worse. Remember, Adam's like, the woman made me do it. Let's reel this in here, people. Let's reel this in. Let me rephrase that. Perhaps what Eve should have said to Satan was, well, no, I, I, I have all these things that God has given me. Why are you trying to get my eyes on the one thing that God has told me not to partake in? And what what Satan wants to make us think is, well, you need the one thing. If you have that thing, then you would fully be happy. If you satisfied that desire, if you accumulated that, if only you had this, you know, that's missing from your life, so you're not whole, the enemy would say. He he wants to get our eyes off off of all that God has given us in his goodness onto the one thing that God has withheld. And if God has withheld something from us, it's precisely because God is good and knows what's best. That's what we often don't trust. We think somehow that we know what's best for our life and that God is withholding good things from us. Listen, God does not withhold good things. God is a giver, the giver of all good things. 
Sometimes for us, it's hard to really lay hold of his presence in the storms. I mean, he is, Jesus is a God who was present with the disciples in the midst of the storm, in the boat, he was with them. Sometimes the storms of life, they, they blow so hard, they pound so hard, they feel so out of control that we're wondering, God, where are you? Life feels that way sometimes. But we are not only participants in the greatest miracle that's ever happened so that we can look to the cross and say, right? Like, so when when God is withholding from me, I can look to the cross and say, well, he gave me a son. Am am I really going to think he's going to withhold something good from me? Or we feel like he's not present with us in the storm. Wait a minute, Christ died for me. How's he not going to be with me here? Or we think maybe he's not sovereign over our situation. Wait, Christ rose from the dead. How could I think he's going to let me down in this? Whatever it is, we, we look to the cross. But we also have, in addition to the evidence and the testimony of the cross, we also have the full canon of Scripture. We have the full witness of God. That is truth, the very word of God, the scriptures. So here, when life kind of makes us doubt, we can look to the word of God and draw faith. It's in the scriptures that we see the faithfulness of God displayed and explained over and over. It's in the scriptures that we see the love of God spoken about and evidenced in multitudinous ways. It's in the scriptures that we see the power of God displayed. It's here that we see the plan of God. He even tells us the end of the story. He even tells us how it's all going to end up. We see the plan of God there. And so sometimes, when life is hard, we find ourselves struggling to trust. Sometimes we've got to realize in light of the cross, in light of the word of God, sometimes we have no excuse for not wanting to go God's way. Sometimes it's it's not a lack of evidence. It's not a lack of believing God's love. It's not a lack of testimony from the word. Sometimes it's just plain old self-will. My will be done. It's where the Pharisees were. They didn't want to go God's way. They had no excuse. And, you know, faith is actually built on the word of God, not on the display of miracles. Miracles are cool, But they're not meant to build faith. The word of God builds faith. Think for a moment about even how Jesus dealt with doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas after the resurrection said, I'm not going to believe unless I could touch his wounds. So at the end here in John 20, Jesus says to Thomas, Tommy, come, come put your fingers in the wounds. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who did not see me and yet believed. So faith is going to come from somewhere other than just seeing these miraculous things. Romans chapter 10 makes it explicit. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So now we begin to lose our excuses. Well, if I only saw this, or if God would only do that. And if we pin our hopes on those things, we might be disappointed. Faith 
comes from and grows by hearing, reading, consuming, studying, chewing, digesting the Word of God. Look what it says in Hebrews 4.12 about the Word of God. For the Word of God is alive and powerful, right? Working and active, sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit. Where, what is that between soul and spirit? So that's some crazy deep place where the Word of God goes. Like between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. So those places of doubt, those places of fear, those places of honest wondering, and those places of dishonest wandering, the Word of God goes after and gets to those places. Look what Peter said about God's Word and growth. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow and respect the salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Right? And we are those who have tasted the kindness of the Lord. That could have been said of the Pharisees who had witnessed those miracles. They should have been able to see, gosh, we see the kindness of the Lord evident and we have seen the kindness of the Lord in the cross more evident than any other way in history and is revealed through Scripture. So, having tasted the kindness of the Lord then, we long for the truth of the Lord, the word of the Lord, like pure milk, like pure milk. The imagery there, the metaphor is a baby. Listen, babies need mama's milk, right? There's things that that don't happen in a baby's immune system without that milk. There is development and nourish and growth that that milk is necessary for. And the same is true with the word of God and us as believers, You know, there's some believers that are stunted in their growth because they haven't been drinking the milk. They've been Christians for a long time, but there's always this refusal to go God's way because there hasn't been this growth that comes as we partake in the pure milk of the Word of God. There are other believers who have been believers for a short time and they're like holy weeds, just growing like big, fat, oversized babies like I was. And they're just growing and growing and growing and it's because of the word of God. They're nourishing. Being nourished on the word of God. So the author of Hebrews then warns us in this way saying, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. So it's not only that we nourish ourselves and are nourished by the Holy Spirit on God's word, but we got to pay careful attention to it and hold to it. Hold to God's word. God's word is God's very word. The Bible is God's very word. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is true in all that it teaches. And we hold to it. And the world is always going to say God's word isn't true. The world is always going to be in contrast with God's values and God's definition of right from wrong. 
We are those who pay careful attention to what God's word says and we hold to it lest we drift from it because the forces that would cause us to drift are many. They're many. And we constantly consume anti-Bible, anti-Christ sort of messages in our movies, in our media, on our social media, on the news, whatever it is, we're constantly consuming these things. And the world, the flow of this world is always trying to pull us away. And the enemy is trying to pull us away. And so the imagery is hold fast to the word of God. Don't drift. That means careful, constant attention to God's word. We shared this verse last week, my brother Bo did when he was preaching, but it's apropos again. Therefore, just as Holy Scripture says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, talking about Israel and they wandered in the wilderness and strayed from God, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they do not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So therefore, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Pause right there, mark that phrase the deceitfulness of sin. Right? It's deceptive in nature. The enemy in the garden deceiving Eve and Adam. The deceitfulness of sin. There's always a way in which it's wrapped to seem right. There's always a justification for why I should hold on to that anger, for why I should be bitter. There's always a reason why, well, that doesn't apply to me. The deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. The Pharisees should have known better. Are there any places in your life right now where you just know better, but you're hesitant or resisting to go God's way? I think we need to be honest about those places. We need to be honest with God. Ask the Holy Spirit today. Holy Spirit, reveal to me if there's any places where I just know, but I know that's what God's word says about that. Or I know God doesn't have that relationship for me. Or I know God is asking me to surrender that thing. Or I know God is asking me to extend forgiveness there. But you've hardened your heart. I understand this experience. Sometimes we just dig in our heels and we just don't want to go God's way. The scriptures to us because of the love of God and what Christ has done for us is saying, don't do that. Hold to the truth of God's word. Think about the places and spaces where we know better, but we're acting like these foolish Pharisees. Jesus gives them a rather sobering analogy in the text, in this little part about demons. Now, this is not not meant to teach about demons. He's just using this as an analogy. I think there's some stuff we could glean there, but he's, he's wanting to rattle them awake. And so he says to them, let's revisit in verse 43. 
Here's the analogy he gives. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Gosh, what does that mean? I don't know, but that's not the point. Okay, the point will come. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds a house unoccupied, swept, clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how, right, an analogy, that is like what it will be with this wicked generation. So he uses this picture to try to awaken these Pharisees who had seen enough and should have known better but didn't want to go God's way to their own falsehood and their lack of faith. The point is about the life that refuses to go God's way, even though it's seen the evidence of God's goodness, right? He starts by saying an impure spirit leaves a person. That's the evidence of God's goodness and God's grace and God's power. This individual has witnessed it. And then it says, Jesus said, the house then is unoccupied, swept, and put in order. That is a picture of a bit of a juxtaposition of a life that is like externally getting things together, but internally unsurrendered to God. Right? He says it's swept and it's put in order, but it's unoccupied. Do you remember at another time you would say to the same group of religious leaders, you'd say, you know what you guys are like? You're like whitewashed tombs. You're a tomb that is painted pretty on the outside, but inside it's full of dead men's bones, he said. He's saying to them, you guys have this religious pretending putting on a Sunday morning face, you're trying to look good, you're trying to put on a good show, but there is no inward reality of a life with God. There's no surrender to the will of God. There's no experience of the fullness of the Spirit and seeking hard after God. You are swept and put in order, but unoccupied. Religious, but not surrendered fully to God. And the Bible actually tells us that this would be a, a common sort of thing in our world in these times. It wasn't just the first century religious leaders. It's actually common in our culture. Look what it says here. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days, there will be very difficult times. For people, tell me if this isn't a good description of, I don't know, everybody. For people will only love themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents. It's good for youth group later, Trav. And ungrateful. James, you can share this. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. Here's the the crux. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people such as this. Swept and put in order, perhaps, acting religious in some way. You've heard it. I'm spiritual. Acting religious in some way, but denying the power that can make them godly the power of the cross and the gospel, the forgiveness of sin and Christ's resurrection from the dead. 
So Jesus is telling his Pharisees, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. You're playing games with God. You're putting on this display on the outside, but inside, you are not surrendered to God. And he says, your condition in the end will be last in the first. These demons, this demon's going to go get seven of his buddies and move in. That's what it's going to be like with you. He's trying to rattle them awake. Second Peter kind of gives us a parallel for our times. Speaking about false teachers, promises us freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by that he is enslaved. For if, after they escape the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Now, it's easy for me to say, yeah, that applies perfectly to the Pharisees, but I'll be honest, that's a little too close to home. How often am I the man that returns to the vomit, the dog that returns to the vomit? In other words, how often do I know better but resist the way of God and keep going back to that place? And there is a frightening warning there. It would have been better if you never knew than to know and to go back. The point is, if we have experienced God's grace and goodness, then we must respond in true faith. And the final little part of the text explains in a profound picture what that response looks like. Again, verse 46, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mothers and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mothers and your brothers, your mothers, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He said to them, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, what Jesus is not meaning to do here is to just wholesale reject his earthly family. Do you remember in the closing chapters of John where he's on the cross and he looks down at uh, John, the disciple whom he loved, and his mom, and he he has this expression of care for his mom. And he, he, he basically says, in essence, John, take care of my mom for me. Right? He's not rejecting them per se. Though, his half-brothers, right? They were half-brothers because Joseph wasn't Jesus' real dad. God was. His half-brothers didn't believe him. That's clear. John chapter 7 says that they didn't believe his ministry. Only after the resurrection did they become followers of Jesus. What he's not doing here, though, is just rejecting his earthly family. What he is doing is clarifying his true family. This is a poignant clarification of the family of God, the family of faith. And what he says in the closing verses, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my true family. Now, it would be easy for us to read that and start to slide back into some works-based thing and say, well, I I better just do the right stuff then. But remember, the Pharisees were the ones who did all the right stuff, but they were still missing the family of God. So we've got to back up for a second and think. My true family, he says, are those who do the will of my Father in heaven. 
What is the initial call of God's will upon us? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now look, this is the will of him who sent me. That that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. So entrance into the spiritual family, into Christ's family, into the family of God is believing in the identity of Jesus. He's, He's clarifying that for them. That's why Matthew puts the story. He includes it right on the heels of that interaction with the Pharisees. In fact, mom and brother started knocking on the door while he was saying those things to the Pharisee. He just finished up uh, comparing them to this demonic situation. And then mom and brother show up and he's like, by the way, here's who my family is. And the initial call of the will of God is to believe in Jesus, his identity, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and so then have eternal life and be brought into the family of God as beloved sons and daughters, the beloved of God, children of God. But then Jesus also taught us that there is a family prayer. God's will and how it relates to the family doesn't just end there. Do you remember the family prayer? Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said to them, pray this way, our Father, right? This is family prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the initial experience of God's will is salvation, faith in Jesus. That's how we enter into the family. But then once we're in the family, this family prayer becomes part of our existence, The family prayer is, Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's easy for us to make that sort of broad cosmic declaration like, yeah, your will be done in Washington, D.C., your will be done in Africa, whatever it is. But it's also personal. Your will be done in me as it is in heaven. We're part of the inclusion of on earth. That's the family prayer. But here's what we know about the family. We don't just pray for God's will. We also engage in God's will. Right? That's part of what we do. Look what it says in Ephesians. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace that you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We aren't saved by our works, but we are saved to do God's works. So it's one of those things, the family prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, that as we pray it, we find ourselves being part of the answer to that prayer. 
That's what Jesus is saying. You're saying, listen, my family, my true family, the family of God, the spiritual family, they actually do the will of God. As opposed to you Pharisees who pay a a lot of lip service, have a lot of external observances, but you're actually resisting God's will and truth in your life. There's always a battle of the wills. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Even the Son of God, Jesus, in the face of the cross said, Father, if there's any way to accomplish the salvation of the world other than me going to the cross, let this cup pass from before me. Three times he prayed that. Three times. And he said, nevertheless, thy will be done. Nevertheless, Father, your will be done. But Gethsemane is that proverbial place of the battle of the wills. And daily, daily, our will is going to come in conflict with the Father's will. And we're going to find ourselves pursuing things that are contrary to the family prayer and the works that God has prepared for us. And we have our daily Gethsemanes. And we are crushed in the shadow of the cross, which is the way of self-sacrifice and of service. And at some point, with the help of the Holy Spirit, as God's family, we want to come to the place where we say, okay, nevertheless, Father, thy will be done. And that's a battle. But that is a battle that is meant to be won. Jesus said that there would be one defining sign. He said, you guys want a sign. Not giving you any more signs, but there will be one sign. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish and then was spit up on the shore, so shall the Son of Man, verse 40, be in the belly of the earth and then rise from the dead. He said the ultimate sign would be his resurrection. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. You know what Jesus' resurrection means for us? It means that any battle can be won. It means that Jesus wins. The empty tomb is a testimony of his victory over our sin, over our enemy, the devil, and over the power of death so that we can be sustained by the resurrected power of God in us through those dark Gethsemane nights where even though we're in the family of God, we are so absorbed by our own will. The Bible tells us that the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead lives in us, the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we don't have to surrender to our own will or the tauntings of the enemy. We actually have power from on high and a new nature that is alive to God to go God's way. Final verse and then we close. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we've been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We're no longer slaves to sin. Let's say that out loud together. We are no longer slaves to sin. It's hard to believe sometimes. 
Sometimes we feel as though sin has the upper hand. So we're under its power. So there's no way out from underneath it. It's not what God's word says. God's word says we are no longer slaves to sin. It continues. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. That's the resurrected life. But you know what came before the resurrection? The cross. You know what came before the cross? The battle in Gethsemane. It's always the way that it goes. It's always going to be a battle for the wills. Surrender is the way of the cross. Nevertheless, Father, thy will be done. Surrendering to the will and the purposes of God. And there is always glory on the other end. There is always glory in obeying Jesus and choosing the way of the cross. Don't be afraid of the cross. After the cross is a resurrection and we live resurrected lives. Amen? Lord, thank you for your beautiful truth. We ask that now, Holy Spirit, as we respond to your truth, that you would help us to sort of sort through our areas of honest doubt where we can say like the disciples, I I, I believe, but help my unbelief. But also that you'd reveal to us, Lord, where we we just don't want to go your way. Thank you that you are merciful with us. Thank you that you draw us by cords of loving kindness. Thank you, Jesus, that you were victorious in Gethsemane. So every time that we fail there, we lean into your victory. Thank you, Jesus, that you obeyed the Father. So every time we fail to obey, we lean into your obedience for us. Thank you for your cross and resurrection. Help us to live the resurrected life experiencing your power over the victory of sin and the enemy and even death. Help us to go your way. Help us to live out the family prayer. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.